God wants us to grow as a church. And he sets things up so, so that we would continue to grow. The last five, six years that I've been here, we have several times come across growth barriers in our church. We've come across what? Growth barriers. In other words, we're growing, 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 we'll hit a ceiling, and then we back off. We'll grow, 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 grow again, hit a ceiling, then we back off. And every time we back off, we become less and less, and then we have to try again, and we grow, 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 boom, we hit the ceiling, then we back off. God is wanting us to break through these barriers. Can you say amen to that? And because of it, we need to realize that our church needs a what? A face lift. There's some things that need to change. Some things that we need to really examine and evaluate. And I'm going to present some things that are tentative, although um, we are trying to head towards that direction. Look what this says right here. This is in Christianity Today. The Seventh-day Adventist Church boasts 18 million members worldwide. We have now just become 18 million member church. But leaders recently revealed that the denomination has lost one in what? Three members over the last 50 years. Additionally, for every 100 people the Adventist church gains, it loses what? 43, per, 43 previous members. 100 come into the church, 43 leave the church. 100 come into the church, 43 leave the church. Here we are trying to understand something, and that is we have a problem. There is a leak in our church. A what? A leak in our church, and we need to plug that leak. According to the research presented, the denomination at the first summit on nature and retention reports Adventist News Network. Here are some issues that may be uh, the cause of these leaks or the leaks themselves. Number one, there is a lack of ability to retain new converts. When we first started doing evangelism here, we started having strong retention rates. But what happened is, over a course of time, the retention rates begin to go down. And the reason why is because we have filled our church with a lot of new Adventists. And many of them have not had the opportunity to mature in faith and take on the responsibilities and roles of those who came before them. So we have an old church full of new people. Number two, there's a lack of leadership training. A lack of leadership training. Our leaders need to do more than just learn how to give a Bible study, but how to effectively make a community that benefits the whole church and learning how to minister to different groups as well. We need to have everything across the table when it comes to groups and different kinds of leaderships. We need diversity in leadership as well. Number three, there's a lack of small groups. By the way, do you know what the very first small group was in the Bible? The Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our church was built upon small groups, and it's going to end on small groups. It is the backbone of Seventh-day Adventism. Number four, there's a lack of unified evangelism with ministries. In other words, we have ministry here, ministry there, ministry there, but there needs to be a more unified purpose to these things. Here's another reason. There is a lack of safety for baby Christians. A lack of what? A lack of safety. Now, heed my words when I say this, ladies and gentlemen. When new people come into our church, we need to make sure we're not jumping into relationships with them. Amen? We need to make sure that they are in safe environments and they actually have opportunity to grow in Christ before other steps are taken. And that is extremely important. This is why people sometimes leave the church. They get into a relationship. They break up. They don't want to be here. Who would want to be here? Not me. So we need to understand this, that when baby Christians come into our church, we need to guard them and make sure they are growing in Christ first and primarily more than anything else. Amen? There is a lack of community, a lack of community. When you read about the early church in the book of Acts, you find that there was this unified sense of mission and purpose where there was not just about five or six doing all the work. Everybody did some kind of work, and they were more of a family unit more than anything else. That's why when you look at the qualifications of elders, the elders are not, it doesn't say, can they, learn how, can they know how to give a good board meeting? Do they know how to lead in song service? When you look at the qualifications that Paul gives to elders, the things are like this. Are they a good family man? How many children do they have? Are they the husband of one wife? How's their household? In other words, what you are seeing about leadership is that God intended the leadership to be family-oriented, indicating what kind of body he desired, and that was a family-oriented body. Can you say amen to that? 
Here's another thing, a lack of vision. The Bible says where there is no what? Vision, the what? People perish. God sets up the leadership so that we can have a wonderful vision and head towards that vision. And we've been giving the three angels message, powerful messages for people who are living at the end of time. And we need to make sure that is part of our mission and our mindset and purpose. God is calling us to head towards this. In the book of Acts, we see a very organized yet very organic yet very organized discipleship model. The new church was fulfilling its purpose by being a community of believers who were united in purpose and mission. The growth strategy included prayer, small groups, leadership development, and something unorthodox for the times, a willingness to adapt to meet the needs of a growing movement. Ladies and gentlemen, as I said before, we are not living in 1980s. Amen? This is not 1980s Adventism. God wants us to be founded upon the Bible and to be able to reach people in a very relevant context without compromising the wonderful truth. But the tension needs to be there. It's not one or the other. God wants us to have both. To be uncompromising and still learn how to be relevant to the people that are surrounding our church And that's very important. Four levels of discipleship that we want to include in our church model. Number one, a commitment to Christ, which means to remain in Christ. Number two, commitment to the body of Christ. And number three, commitment to ministry. And number four, a commitment to be a lay minister. In other words, the fourth thing is different from the third thing. The third thing is about being a good witness. The fourth thing is making disciples who can be other witnesses. The greatest mark of a leader, ladies and gentlemen, is somebody who is able to duplicate himself. So if you're praying, I want to be a good leader in my church, ladies and gentlemen, learn to duplicate yourself. Learn to make disciples who can take your place that even if you are gone, that structure is not going to fall apart. And that's extremely important. So understand these things. Now let's take a good look at some possible options for a facelift. Number one, we need a new vision and mission statement, and we'll be heading towards this. Number two, we will be looking at leadership development. Number three, we will have a very intentional plan for Sabbath schools. And I really appreciate our Sabbath schools, but we do need more Sabbath schools that can engage people off the street. People who have no understanding of the scriptures, who have a partial understanding of the scriptures, when they come into a Sabbath school, they can immediately come into, uh, into what's taking place. Ken Cox said this, that old evangelist, he says, you want to know why people don't come back from the church? It's because they go to Sabbath school. That's what he said. You know why? Because there's sometimes people in Sabbath school who choose to fight over little things and miss the bigger picture and understandings of Scripture. And this is something we need to really start evaluating and take a good look at. New member development and integration. We want to make sure our new members not only become solid Christians, but they're actually integrated into the body. Number five, we want to make sure small groups become the earmark of series. And we have multiple small groups already taking place. But to have even more, our church needs to be known for small groups. In fact, Ellen White says that we have been given counsel by one who cannot err about small groups. And you want to know the funny thing is? The other Christians are already ahead of us in this. The other Christians are already ahead of this. And that's why their megachurches are exploding because they're implementing what's already been given to us about 100 years plus. Now look at the next thing. Possible new first name for Series SDA. Now just hold on for a second there. You're thinking to yourself, wait a minute. We're going to change the name of Series SDA? No, we are not. Seventh-day Adventism is a special name, a rebuke to the Protestant world. God has given us that holy name and it indicates our mission and what we believe in. But we as a church do not have a first name. Did you know that Ellen White was actually part of naming a church? It was called the Dime Tabernacle Seventh-day Adventist Church. When they were looking to name a church, they based it upon the character by which that church was built up. Do you know what supplied the money for the church or how much or how people were supplying the money for that church? It's pretty obvious. What was it? Through dimes. So she called it the, she helped, was part of that naming her and her son, the Dime Tabernacle Seventh-day Adventist Church. All we are known as, as Ceres Seventh-day Adventist Church. We need to start praying about a possible first name that would characterize our church. In fact, when I drive by the Modesto Mormon Church, you know what it is? That, what the only thing I believe about that Mormon church, when I drive by, when I think about who's in there, only Mormons. 
That's the only thing I believe. When I drive by the Modesto Mormon Seventh-day... Oh, no, no. The Modesto Mormon Church. I stopped myself there. Gotcha. Got it now. Okay. Okay. Praise the Lord for his angels, right? When I drive by the Modesto Mormon Church, I only think to myself, there are Mormons in that church and that's all. And so there's not this sort of mission or this characteristic that is drawing people there. We need a first name to our church. And this is part of a facelift. It's not compromising our last name and who we are. That is a special name. But we need to start praying about this as we're looking at a possible facelift. And more community outreach focus. By the way, you want to know what it was our most number one attended event last year? It was our Halloween event. We did an alternative to Halloween. Amy Jones and some of her family and friends led out in that. And we had so much attendance, people coming off the street. You want to know why? Because they were looking for a safe alternative to Halloween. You know us? We had a lot of people come to. Remember our Christmas play that we did? And then we did the baptismal call at the end? That had community people come out to that. Ladies and gentlemen, God is wanting us to go not just beyond just do evangelism. We need to keep doing that, but also to extend it to a community outreach so that the people know us for more than just prophecy, but good works. Amen? And so as we're thinking and praying about a possible facelift, we need to start really asking Jesus, what are you calling us to do? God is the great master worker, and by his providence, he prepares the way for his work to be accomplished. This is powerful. He provides opportunities, opens up lines of influences, and channels of working. If his people are what? Watching the indications of his providence and stand ready to cooperate with him, they will see a great work accomplished. Their efforts, this is powerful, rightly directed, will produce a hundredfold greater result than can be accomplished with the same means and what? Facilities in another channel where God is, known, is not so manifestly working. In other words, we can receive a hundredfold blessing than we've had so far. If we are watching for indications of his providences and seeing the direction that he is leading our church, ladies and gentlemen, God wants us to be aware of these things. Number two is this, before we jump into our sermon, I'm going 90 miles an hour because I know we don't got too much time, and that is this, people have the question about church planning. When are we actually going to plant a church? Here's the thing, in evaluating church planning and our prospects the last two years, we've come to some very interesting conclusions, and that is this, there is a place more ripe than Houston, California, and that is Patterson, California. Patterson actually has three times the amount of population that there's present in the city of Houston. The closest Adventist church is us. And that's 30 to 40 minutes away. Patterson is right off the five freeway. They just opened up a gigantic, I mean, it is gigantic, an Amazon warehouse that has opened up thousands of jobs, ladies and gentlemen. And as we're looking at what's taking place in Patterson, it is remarkable, and we really feel that God is opening the doors in that direction. Houston, we're not giving up on Houston, but Houston is right in the middle of a triangle, Adve- a triangle of Adventist churches. That means five to ten minutes, you can be at any Adventist church. But the city of Patterson, you have to drive literally 30 to 40 minutes away to find an Adventist church. And why it says right here, new territories are to be worked by men inspired by the Holy Spirit. New churches must be what? Established, new congregations organized. At this time, there should be representatives of present truth in every what? city and in the remote parts of the earth. And by the way, we don't want to just build a church there by God's grace. We want to take it the next level to produce something that's never been done before. And this is only going to take place when God's people are praying. The Bible says that who can lead us into the strong city? Is it not you, Lord? God is the only one that can take us that next step into evangelism. I don't know about you, but I feel that God is calling us to pray as a church family that he would open up. So if you wouldn't mind getting on your knees, and let's pray that God would take this to the next level. He is the only one who can do this. And unless we are unified in prayer and direction and mission, it will never happen. Let's take in a moment of silence just to pray and ask for God to open up doors in the city of Patterson according to his will. Father in heaven, we just thank you so much. Lord, we know that you are the God that opens up doors. And we as a church family are united in prayer, asking for heaven to open up doors. Father, you've called us. You've already given us the gospel mission to take it to every tribe, nation, tongue, and people. And Lord, we want to do this. 
and we're looking at nearby cities, and God, we are asking that you would open up the doors according to your will. Father, we know that all things are possible by your hand. And we are asking for the Holy Spirit to work in a way that's never been done before, to do something in California that's never been done before. God, we are looking to you right now. Thank you for that promise that with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Bless us now with the Holy Spirit as we jump into our sermon. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, ladies and gentlemen, how many people have enjoyed the rain? Raise your hand if you've enjoyed the rain. How many people did not, who are, is not, are not enjoying the rain right now as we're speaking? Okay, good. Most people, okay, one person over there. Um, if you've been paying attention to the news lately, you, found, you have found out that California is in a serious drought. The government is thinking about desperate measures to deal with the, the drought that we are facing. And so when, uh, you know, when rain has been taking place the last few days, it has been a wonderful thing to be able to see and witness. Apparently, there's been a lot of God-fearing farmers who have been praying for rain. They've been praying for rain. And the, just the last few days, seeing the rain come has been like a breath of fresh air to these farmers who need that water to grow those crops. Where water flows, crops grow. Amen? And so understanding these things, we need to look back in the story of somebody who also prayed for rain as well. Do you remember what his name was, ladies and gentlemen? His name was who? Elijah. Now, Elijah was a mighty man of God. He was a powerful prophet. Not much is said about his origins. Apparently, when he shows up, this mighty man of God begins to tear down altars, and he begins to pray that there would be a drought for three and a half years. And suddenly, there was a drought. When this man prayed that rain would come after three and a half years, rain would come. Another time when armies went out to go kill him, he would pray and call down fire, and fire would come out of heaven and destroy his enemies. Another time he was on the mountaintop with all Israel there, and he prayed for fire, and fire came streaming out of heaven and lit up this altar. It seemed that Elijah had the command of nature at his hands. When this mighty prophet would pray, things would take place. Not little things, big things. This was a man who was very interesting, who had a connection with God that the rest of Israel did not possess at that time. There is so much said about Elijah, but there is so much not being said about this mighty man of God. However, what we're going to be looking at is something very unusual about the life of Elijah. It wasn't when these great things were taking place. It was what took place one day in the middle of his ministry that brought the greatest of prophets to the lowest pit. The greatest of prophets who called down fire in the sight of men to a point where he was faced, faced with himself. Elijah the prophet went into depression. Everybody take your Bible. Let's go to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. This mighty man of God who done great and mighty things in the name of God, who glorified God, powerful things that shook Israel, all of a sudden was faced with the situation that led him to run away and run for his very own life. This man of God was now a coward to all of Israel. Look what the Bible says in 1 Kings chapter 19, starting with verse 1. And Ahab told who? Jezebel, all that Elijah had done, talking about that great miracle that took place on Mount Carmel. Also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah said, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by what? Tomorrow about this time. Now watch this. And when he saw that, he arose, ran for his, pay attention to the next word, for his what? life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his what? I mean, this guy was so freaked out, he left his servant behind. Here he is, he's running from this great trial, this great time of darkness, a time where he was worried about his own life. He goes off running to one city, and his servant's running behind him, and he's like, okay, let's just stay right there. And the very next day, he takes off running. Here was a man of God who faced down kings and false prophets. And here he is, he is now running at the threat of one woman. 
The devil loves to magnify our troubles. And sometimes he makes us believe things that are, they makes us believe things that are far more, or I should say, that are less worse or less bad as they really are. And he did this with Elijah, this mighty prophet. When he saw that, he rose, ran for his life, went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself, when a day's journey into the wilderness, came and sat under a what? Broom tree, and he prayed that he might what? Die, and he said, it is enough. Now, Lord, take my what? What was he praying for? That God would carry out his suicide. Elijah had apparently reached a point in his emotional experience where now he was ready to give up on God himself and was ready to say, I'm done, I'm finished, I don't want any more of this, end my life, it doesn't matter anymore. A point of depression this man was led to. I felt really impressed the middle of the week to, be pre- to preach on this subject. And I begin to understand why in the latter parts of this week, why this message is so important. In fact, I was looking at one particular article that was done by World Health Organization, or WHO. The World Health Organization predicts that by 2020, depression will be the second most debilitating disease and the second leading cause of disease and suffering worldwide, surpassed only by heart disease. It is estimated that 350 million worldwide suffer from depression. More than 20 million of them live in the U.S. It costs the U.S. more than 70 billion in treatment, disability, and lost productivity each year. Studies show that women are two to three times more likely than men to have depression. And one in four women will suffer from clinical depression sometime during their life versus one in eight men. And I know people in this church are suffering with depression as well. Many times in our life where it seems like things are going pretty decent and seems like we got stability and control, all of a sudden we'll go through this period where we're all, it just seems like the dark clouds are following us wherever we try to go. And we try to find hope and courage. And it seems like the things that once helped us in the past no longer are helping us again. Oftentimes we'll go to people for comfort. And we'll ask them to pray with us, to give us counsel and encouragement. And then we end up even more confused than we did before we talked to them. Say amen if you know what I'm talking about. Many times in our lives, we have gone through dark valleys. And let me just say to you, as we head closer and closer to the end of time, tragedies are going to increase. Suffering is going to get worse. Worse things are going to be taking place than we've ever seen before. And it's going to lead people to become more and more depressed. Elijah... The greatest of the Old Testament prophets besides Moses went into a time where the suffering that was taking place, which was a sense of fear and doubt and sort of this understanding that the plans that that are about to take place were coming to an end, he himself was confronted with this same problem. Depression's a real thing. Even Jesus himself, the Bible says, he was a man acquainted with grief. Do you know what that means, acquainted? No one really says, I'm acquainted with the TV. Or I'm acquainted with pews. Well, some of you guys probably say that, but here's the thing. Generally, you want to say you're acquainted with a person. And so when you take a thing and you turn it into a person, you are trying to place an emphasis upon that very process. And so when the Bible says in Isaiah 53, he was a man acquainted with grief, the Bible's pinpointing that Jesus went through periods of depression. The Son of God, living in a fractured world that was full of sin, decay, and darkness. Horrible mistreatment by other people. A lack of love. No longer seeing support. Even the very people he came to save turned their back on him. Jesus was a man who was acquainted with grief. And now here Elijah was somebody who was going through a time of depression. I think this is really cool. Elijah actually was somebody who was ministered to by Christ. And later on during Christ's ministry, Elijah would be the one to minister to Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. Let's find out what God does to help Elijah through this dark time. Take your Bible. Let's go to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. Let's start with verse 5. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly a what? An angel touched him. 
and said to him, Arise and eat. Do you know who heaven sends to comfort Elijah during this time? What? An angel. By the way, do you know angels were manifest to Christ two different times in his life? Do you know what they were? Gethsemane says in the Gospel of Luke, and another time in the wilderness of temptation. He saw angels. Angels were with him through his entire life, but he saw angels only twice. Once in the wilderness experience and one in Gethsemane, which tells us that angels were most manifest, most visible to Christ during his weakest and darkest moments, which also gives us a clue to what angels love to do, to lift up fallen man. During at times of sorrow and uh, just discomfort, we can pray and ask God to send his angels, and we will experience their help. Well, let's see what happens right here. Verse 5 again, Then as he lay, he slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him. By the way, that Hebrew word for touch is actually the same word that God used when it talks about how God plagued Pharaoh. It's the same word for plague. Now, do you think that when this angel was trying to comfort Elijah, he immediately slapped him? No. There's something unique about the touch of God. It's so powerful, yet it's so gentle. And so he touches this discouraged man of God. He wakes him up. And instead of trying to explain to him what he should do or shouldn't have done... All he does, he ministers to his physical needs first. Are you listening to me? He says, arise and eat. And Elijah begins to eat. There's probably not too much conversation. Nothing's recorded there. Watch what happens next. It's very interesting. Verse 6. He looked and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Went back to sleep. And the, second, and the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. Notice how this angel is comforting him. The angel is seeking just to minister to his physical needs. God is communicating to Elijah, people care about you. Heaven cares about you. And during this time of darkness, when Elijah felt utterly alone and could not trust anybody, heaven itself sent a message, and that was, we still care for you. And as they minister to his need, as this angel ministers to his need, the second time he tells him, eat and keep going. Pay attention to this. Elijah was running for his life. The angel fed him so he could continue running for his life. There was no sense of, hey, you need to get some counseling right now, Elijah. You got some serious issues. Let's talk about them. I got some pills for you to take, Elijah. This will help you feel better in a couple hours. He didn't do any of that. He ministers to his physical need, and he says, keep running. You're going to need this strength as you're running to Horeb. Elijah was running from his mission and his calling, and it seems as if this angel was assisting him in that. They weren't really assisting him in that. They were just showing support for him wherever he was at in his journey. And see what happens next. This gets very interesting, ladies and gentlemen. Verse 9. He went into a cave, spent the night in that place, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, tore down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I am alone, and I alone am left. And they have... They seek to take my life. Pay attention. Elijah makes four different complaints to God. Four different complaints. How many complaints? Four. The first thing he says, they have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars. The third thing is, he says, they killed your prophets. And the fourth thing is, he says, I'm alone in this. I'm the only one doing this work. And here Elijah makes these complaints. But before God can address the root cause of his depression and darkness, he must lead Elijah through a different kind of understanding. And watch what that understanding is. Verse 11. Then he said, go out, stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains, broke the rocks into pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. 
but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small what? All of a sudden, Elijah steps, steps outside of that cave, and he looks and he sees this great wind, or hears this great wind, and it's just hitting these rocks. They're flying out, and all of a sudden, the Bible says, but the Lord was not in those things. Elijah picked up very carefully, this was not, God was not in this. There was no message that God was communicating in the wind. And all of a sudden, Elijah steps out again, and he sees this great wall of fire. And Elijah picked up really quickly, wait a minute, there's no communication I'm getting from God in this. And then all of a sudden, there was this great earthquake. I don't know how the correct signs sound like things falling. He's just, whatever. And all of a sudden, the Bible says, but the Lord was not in that. And then it says, afterwards, this is very important. He heard a still, what? Small voice. Now I have wrestled with this text over and over again, thinking to myself, what in the world was he trying to communicate to Elijah? Think about Elijah's life prior to this moment. Elijah would do great things. He'd call down fire. He'd call down rain. He'd stop rain. He would do all sorts of mighty works, resurrected a young boy. All these great things were happening in Elijah's life. But Elijah had mischaracterized God's voice and attaching it to great and mighty things. Whenever big things would happen, it's because God was in those things. But here now, God was communicating to Elijah, I'm not in those big things. Evidences of me working are in those things. But you have misunderstood my voice. God was trying to improve his relationship with Elijah and deal with one of Elijah's faults. Elijah just wanted big things in his life. Only to understand his relationship with God. Even the Pharisees said, show us signs and wonders and we'll finally believe in you when the spoken word was right before them. Many times people are praying for great miracles and they're praying for great signs and wonders and we as Seventh-day Adventists, oftentimes in our practical day-to-day life, we will say, well, God, if you're doing these things, it's because you're present. If providence happens, it's because you're present. If you're doing this, if you speak to me with this powerful verse, it's because you're present. But here God was trying to teach Elijah, I'm speaking through all that stuff through the still, small voice. And by the way, up to this point, so much had been done. But now Elijah's ministry was about to rapidly change. When you read the rest of Elijah's life after this crisis, there was no more fire and earthquake, and there was no more great wind, except when he was translated. But prior or after that moment, Elijah experienced none of those things. In fact, the second phase of his experience actually prepped him for translation, prepped him for translation. And that was hearing the voice of God more clearly. Not relying upon great evidences or things that God was leading, but learning to trust the still, small voice during this time of darkness. And by the way, when you read about Elijah's life after this point, God tells him four things. He says, go anoint the king of Samaria. He's going to deal with those who torn down the altars. Go anoint Jehu. He will deal with those who have persecuted the prophets. And Jehu took out Jezebel and the whole family who killed the prophets. Then he says, go anoint Elisha. He will deal with those who have forsaken the covenant. And then the last thing he says, I have reserved 7,000 who have not bowed their knee to Baal. He answered every one of Elijah's complaint, but before he actually gave that instruction, he had to help Elijah distrust his former understanding of God's will. Are you listening to me? I hope you're paying attention to this, because this is really deep. He was helping Elijah to distrust the way that Elijah had further, prior to this time, walked with God. And was leading him to trust more into the still small voice, the word of God, more than the great events that were taking place around him. He was about to lead Elijah into a new phase of ministry he had never experienced prior to this time. And eventually be translated. But now he was allowing this crisis to take place to lead Elijah to that next step where he would take Elisha, a companion, to go with him. Where he would minister to people. 
in a different way. No more tearing down altars. No more calling down fire. No more praying for droughts to take place. None of that was going to take place after this moment. Because Elijah was now being prepped for something even more special. God allows suffering. It is a reality we must confront. But if God allows it, it's because ultimately there is something better in store. Oftentimes we cannot make it out and understand what's going on. But I love what Ellen White says, right? She gives the most practical advice during times of suffering and darkness and confusion. Hope and courage are the fruits of what? Faith. Despondency is sinful and unreasonable. God is able and willing more abundantly to bestow upon his servants the strength they need for test and trial. The plans of the enemies of his work may seem to be well laid and firmly established, but God can overthrow the strongest of these. And this he does in his own time and his way when he sees that the faith of his servants have been sufficiently what? Tested for the disheartened, there is a sure remedy for those who are depressed, those who are going through times of darkness and confusion. Here is the sure remedy to help you as you're traveling through that valley. And that is this. For the disheartened, there is a sure remedy. Faith, prayer, and work. Faith, prayer, and work. Faith and activity will impart assurance and satisfaction that will increase day by day. In the darkest days, when appearance seem most forbidding, fear not. Have faith in God. He knows your need. He has all power and his infinite love and compassion never weary. Fear not that he will fail of fulfilling his promise. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are going through dark times and through suffering and confusion, this is the time where you have to say, I'm still going to have faith. I'm still just going to keep working for the Lord. I'm still going to keep doing these things in spite of what the devil is trying to do. It is so practical while you're waiting for God to work and open up the door. Somebody once said, praise him in the hallway. And while you're waiting for God to do something over there, this is the time for you to say, well, I got to do what's around me. God has given me work. He wants me to be a mop. I'm going to do it. And as you do those things and take your mind off that primary root of depression or darkness, what you're going to discover is you will get more and more strength and more and more counsel on the way God has been leading your life. For the, sure, for the disheartened, there is a sure remedy. Faith, prayer, and work. Don't stay where you are at. Choose to have faith. I told you this story a few years ago. I'll remind you about this story. It's about this man who gets to heaven one day. An angel is taking him around heaven, showing him all the wonderful things of heaven, all the glories, all the beautiful buildings, all the, you know, animals, everything. And then all of a sudden, he takes him to this place where there's a cave. And he's like, there's a cave here in heaven. He's like, yep. And there's a man in, in that side of the cave who's just looking very wretched in heaven. And here he is inside this cave. There's just darkness. His face just has dirt and grime on it. And he's talking to him, and he's like, wait a minute. Telling his angel, why is this man choosing to be here? Why is he still in that cave when all of heaven is waiting for him? And the angel says, because he chooses to be. Satan wants you to believe that darkness is a room where the lock is on the outside. You listening to me? God is trying to help you to believe in faith. That dark darkness... If you open that door to Christ, the light of the world, he will come in and he will shine that light. He does not want you to believe this truth. And that's why Satan is posed. Because oftentimes in discouragement, we start distancing ourselves from God. Through just being disheartened, we remove ourselves from God. And that's precisely Satan's ultimate goal. You know what's so interesting about this book? It's called Job. I really like the book of Job lately. I've been studying it out along with other things. Take your Bible, go to Job chapter 1. You're going to be blown away with what I'm just about to show you right now. Do you know the most perfect life in the Old Testament? It's the most idyllic life in the Old Testament. Do you know whose life that is? I just told you the answer. It was Job. You're saying, what? You know, Job is the most perfect life in all of Scripture. It really is. You're like, um, have you read the book of Job? No, trust me, it is. 
Job is the most perfect life found in Scripture. In fact, that is the Scripture's intention. Go to Job chapter 1. If you're there, go ahead and say amen. Now watch this, Job chapter 1. By the way, many people believe that Job lived during the time of the, or right after the time of the flood, before Abraham, simply because at the end he does live a very, very long time. And that would be the post of uh, the people who came after the flood. They lived a long period of time shortly after, but then their age began to drop. Okay, look what the Bible says in verse 1. There was a man in the land of what? Us, whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. Is Job a spiritual man, yes or no? It's so, he's so spiritual, the Bible says he's blameless. Look what the Bible says, next. And seven sons and three daughters were what? Born to him. He had a full house. If you see him driving a van, he'd probably have one of those family stickers and 15 kids, 12 kids, along the back, and a little puppy at the end, right? Look what the Bible says right there. Or excuse me, uh, I can't count, 10 kids. And number three, watch this. So he was a godly man, awesome family. Number three, also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household so that this man was the what? Greatest of all the people of the East. This man had the most idyllic life. Even his family was converted because the Bible says that when his daughters needed a place to eat, the brothers would say, hey, come on over to our house and eat. Even Job prayed in his intercession prayer. He's like, hey, I better intercede and just in case they sin, implying they were good people too. The most perfect life given to us in Scripture is the book of Job, is Job's initial life. But then all of a sudden we're introduced to the worst life in Scripture, and that is Job. All of a sudden everything that can happen takes place, and this man begins to go through a time of intense suffering. Darkness came upon him. And by the way, the book of Job has language that is used during the seven last plagues. It talks about fire, hail, even cursing God. Even Job's wife just says, curse God and be done. But Job is a rebuke to the people living and cursing God during the time of plagues. He was a man who probably had every earthly reason to give up on God, but he would not. And he decided, though everything is taken away, his family was taken away, his livestock was taken away, his own wife begins to lose faith in the mission. And everything around him is just shaken away. And here Job is saying, no, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Now what is so interesting is this. When you read the book of Job, Job's three buddies come by. And they are some of the worst buddies in the world. You know what they attempt to do? They attempt to give an answer to Job's suffering. And the more you read the book of Job, the more stranger and obscure it becomes. You want to know why? Because we don't have answers to suffering on this side of heaven. Are you listening to me? And that's why when you read the book of Job, you're just like, what are they talking about? Because you can't explain the great controversy this side of heaven. We can give certain principles and certain concepts. But ultimately, what we begin to understand in the book of Job, that suffering's greatest help is not found in an answer but an audience. God shows up. The book of Job communicates to us, even when God appears to Job, he doesn't say to him, well, it's because of this grand meta-narrative, this great controversy battle. He doesn't even bring up the devil when he's comforting Job. Because it is not propositional factors or truths that helps people during times of suffering and darkness. It is relational factors and truths that help people. You know, I have a friend. It's one of my best friends. She was a counselor. And when she was younger, she was molested by her grandpa. How do you give answers and hope to someone who was abused by a relative? What propositional truths can you give about the great controversy that are going to somehow alleviate their pain? You know, I read this book called The Kite Runner. It was a bestseller. It's very raw. wouldn't recommend it. It's a story about this man who's in Afghanistan, grows up there. It's fictionalized, but it's still very interesting. It's, it's the man who grows up in Afghanistan, wealthy family. And he grows up with a, 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 
a servant's son and their best friends, and somehow situations happen, they get separated, and the main author or the main hero of the story ends up going to America, starting a business, becomes a bestseller, an author, and he starts feeling this guilt, this regret for not doing more for his best friend who grew up in poverty. In fact, during the friendship, he didn't always treat him right. He gets a call one day that his best friend actually was killed by the Taliban. And he left behind a son. So he decides he's going to go adopt this son. And he goes over to Afghanistan in a series of adventures. He finally finds the son, but the son has been sold into the Taliban. A warlord, Taliban warlord, has been having his way with this young boy. And through a, a, a series of events, he gets the boy out, and he's racing out of Afghanistan trying to free this boy. And the Taliban are chasing after him. One day he gets to this place, it's a very safe spot in Afghanistan. And he's there, they're trying to get out, he's trying to work with immigration to take the boy out of this country because it's not safe for him. Middle of the night, the boy runs away from the hotel they were staying at. And he starts looking for the boy, looking different places. All these things keep coming to him about the past and about his best friend and how his best friend would have wanted him to take care of his son. And finally, he finds the boy on this little hilltop overlooking a mosque. And he sits down and he talks to the boy. And the boy says this. I feel so dirty. And the way the man begins to comfort the son, or his future adopted son, he begins to tell him about his father. And he tells the boy, you have no sin. This did not come about because of your choices. You are not dirty. You're clean. Now, we understand the gospel communicates that very message. It's obviously through the blood of Jesus. But what is so interesting is that we are facing an epidemic that's going to get worse and worse and worse. And God is wanting us to be, wants us to confront these issues in a way that's going to bring about most amount of healing and restoration. Remember I said to you the worst life in all scripture was the book of Job? It was Job. The best life in all scripture is Job. But what happens is at the end of Job, and I want you to see this. Take your Bible, go to the very end of Job. Last chapter. Some people are probably asking the question, why are you talking about this in church? Better in church than on your TV sets. Look what the Bible says in Job chapter 42, verse 12. Are we all there? Now, the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning for he had 14,000 sheep 6,000 camels what do you notice about this it's double everything he had lost but you're going to see an amazing point right here 1,000 yoke of oxen 1,000 female donkeys and verse 13 he also had seven sons and three what? Ladies and gentlemen, what was he not given double of? Oh, he was. The implication is the kids that had died are going to be in heaven one day. Job gained double than he lost. Not that God caused that suffering, but God bought out good the greatest hope we have for those who are suffering if it's ourselves or others is number one we need an audience with God not just answers but an audience and during, during that time where we are having that audience with God that sit down talk with the Lord you will find healing and hope 
and guidance. And for those who are suffering, the promise of God is, although he did not cause that suffering, he will bring out greater good from that suffering if you will allow him. It's what God specializes in. Many people who are struggling, many people who are looking for help and hope during this time, many people who are asking themselves the question, how long am I still going to be under this darkness? For those who feel they don't have help or support, this message is for you. You have a God in heaven who loves you. For those who have been broken by sin or somebody else's sin, scarred, The promise of God is that he will bring healing to those wounds. And he will do justly for you. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a God who loves us, who truly cares for us. During our times of weakness, during our times of darkness, and during those times where we have no strength. Jesus himself understood this. Look what the Bible says in Proverbs 3 verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. You can rest in God during these times of darkness and confusion. Lean not upon your own understanding. The same thing he was trying to teach Elijah. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he will direct your path. Surrender to him where your life is at this very moment. And you will see that he will bring great good out of those trials, the sufferings that you have. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.com dot org.